Church. Again, great to see you this morning. Glad you're here with us. And we're going to be, of course, continuing our journey through the Gospel of Mark. <clears throat> we are looking today at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, uh, verse 32 to 34. But to introduce our thoughts for today, I would like to read with you the three times that Jesus told his disciples about his coming death, as well as reminding you of the moment on the mountain that we studied several weeks ago when Peter, James, and John saw Jesus in a brief display of his future glory speaking with Moses and Elijah about his coming death in Jerusalem. So let's look at those verses today. We're going to begin in Mark chapter 8. Just a couple of phrases here where Jesus tells his disciples about his upcoming death. Mark chapter 8, look first of all at verse 31. <clears throat> Mark eight thirty-one. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. But notice in verse 31, he began to teach them. He was just beginning to prepare them for what was coming. He began to teach them that he would suffer many things and be rejected by the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And then just a few verses later in chapter 9, in verse 2, it says, After six days Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Remember we talked about that word metamorphosis. He was, he was changed into something different briefly in, the, in their eyes. His clothing, his clothes became shining, exceedingly white like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And remember, Mark does not include this particular, uh, this particular statement, but in the Gospel of Luke, he says that Jesus and Elijah and, and, uh, and Moses were talking about Jesus' upcoming death in Jerusalem. Look down at verse 30 of that chapter. Same chapter, chapter 9. They departed from there, <clears throat> and they passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. Here again, for he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and were afraid to ask him. Now here in chapter 10, he does the same thing, and this is our basic text for the day. Chapter 10 and verse 32. This is the third time now, plus the Mount of Transfiguration. Chapter 10 and verse 32. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. 
Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. This is, of course, more detailed than any of the other times that Jesus spoke to them. He told them exactly what would happen. They will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. One of the most deceitful lies ever told about Jesus by unbelieving scholars is that his ministry was designed to teach us great moral lessons about love and forgiveness and peace, and he ended up being crucified because he miscalculated the reaction to his message. They say that he thought people would accept his message of love and peace, and when they didn't, he was arrested and crucified, and he didn't realize what was happening until it was too late. They go further in this lie, saying that he was overtaken by his enemies because he was politically naive, and his tragic death ended his dreams of making a better world for all of us. This is a wicked, satanically inspired revision of biblical history, and nothing could be further from the truth. The central message of the Gospel of Mark, the central message of all four of the Gospels, and actually the central message of the entire Bible, is that the first man that God created rebelled against God, brought the curse of sin on all of humanity, and set in motion the plan of God the Father, designed even before creation, The plan to send a Redeemer, a Savior, to to rescue human beings from the curse of sin and to bring us back into fellowship with God. That is the central message of the Gospel of Mark, the central message of all four of the Gospels, and the central message of the entire Bible. These scriptures were preserved for us to give us clear evidence that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh and that he was indeed dying for our sin so that we could place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. For the eternal salvation of our souls. Jesus knew that his disciples needed special preparation for these horrifying events. During his betrayal, during his arrest, all of the various trials at night that were upcoming just a couple of weeks after, after this text the beatings, the scourging, the mocking, the crucifixion during all of that, Jesus did not look like Almighty God. He looked weak. He looked humiliated, and Jesus knew that at that crucial moment that his disciples would probably not remember his words that we have recorded for us in John chapter 10 and verse 18, where Jesus said, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down all by myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it back again. This command I received from my Father. And one important thing that you and I must remember, that Jesus was never a victim. He was never a victim of anything. He laid down his life on purpose, willingly, intentionally. He laid down his life for us to save us from God's justified wrath against us for our sin. And in order to clearly demonstrate this fact, he predicted his death in detail ahead of time, and he did it repeatedly. We just saw three places where he spoke to his disciples, plus Peter, James, and John saw him on the mountain talking to Elijah and Moses about his upcoming death in Jerusalem. Now, in thinking through all this, the question comes to us, why would Jesus predict his death? 
We've given you one purpose to begin, uh, begin preparing his disciples to face this horrifying event. But, but, but beyond that, what other reasons are there for Jesus to predict his crucifixion and resurrection? And what's more, how could Jesus precisely know what would happen to him? Well, I want to begin our thoughts with this foundational truth, and that is this, that God is determined to fulfill his word. God's word always precedes reality. And what I mean by that is God speaks and then it happens. God's word precedes reality. God speaks and then it happens. And God is determined to fulfill his word. It is by the word of God that the universe was made. We know that Psalm 33, 6 says, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. God said at creation, let there be light, and then there was light. The entire creation came into being by the power of God's word. So see, the word precedes the reality. God speaks, and then it happens. There is creative power in his word. There is fulfilling power in God's word. One of my favorite passages I have quoted to you many, many times over the years, Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11, where God says, I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done saying my counsel will stand and I will do all my pleasure indeed I have spoken it I will also bring it to pass I have purposed it I will also do it three times in the book of Ezekiel he says the same thing in Ezekiel seventeen twenty four, he says I the Lord have spoken and have done it in Ezekiel 22:14 he says I the Lord have spoken and will do it. Ezekiel 36:36 36, he says I the Lord have spoken and I will do it. You see God is determined to fulfill his word because he is proving to mankind over and over and over again that he is who he says he is. He is the almighty God, he is the creator of the universe, and believing his word, believing what God says, has always been the basis of our forgiveness, always. Way back in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 15, it says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Romans 10.17 says, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. You see, there is this powerful biblical link between faith and the Word of God. The Apostle John begins his Gospel with, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in 14, verse 14, same chapter, he says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So Jesus Christ is the Word of God. The Bible is the written Word. Jesus Christ is the living Word. They are so powerfully linked together that the book of Hebrews says even that the written word of God is alive and filled with power in, in Hebrews 4. The written word speaks about the living word. And so the written word is also alive and filled with power. And at the second coming of Christ in Revelation 19, it says, John, the apostle John writes, I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him is called faithful and true. And in 
righteousness, he judges and makes war. He says he was clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Again, Jesus Christ called the Word of God. And at that point in Revelation 19, all the prophetic visions of the last 6,000 years will be fulfilled. Because Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But why do we begin with this foundational truth? Because Jesus Christ wants his followers in every generation to trust his words completely. Especially those words that focus on his death on the cross and his resurrection. So he predicts it in detail. That's what we read a few minutes ago. God, God is always determined to fulfill his word. See, our, our faith is not some blind leap in the dark. Our faith is based on evidence. God's word precedes reality. God speaks and then it happens. So if someone asks you, why in the world do you believe the Bible? Your answer should be because of the evidence. And of course, their next question is going to be, what evidence? And your answer should be fulfilled prophecy. Then if they want to go further, you can turn for starters to Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53, which we will do in a minute. Both of those scriptures can contain, <coughs> excuse me, the distinct prophecies about the death of the Lord Jesus that were written hundreds of years before Christ. Psalm 22 describes certain aspects of crucifixion several hundred years before crucifixion was ever even devised. God's word precedes reality. God speaks and then it happens. And our faith is based on evidence. We believe what God says. Now let's get the picture in our text here. Look at back at verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. They're on the road going up to Jerusalem. Now Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above sea level, higher than most of the surrounding countryside. So the Jewish people always speak of going up to Jerusalem. Doesn't matter if they're coming from the north, the south, the east, or the west. You always went up to, to Jerusalem. And so Jesus is leading the way. Now this is kind of interesting. He says Jesus was going before them. Every place Jesus went, everywhere he goes, he's always surrounded by crowds of people. But here he is out in front of the crowd. And, and whatever is going on, it, it is astounding to the people. They were astonished. That's what, these, that's what these words mean, amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. As they got closer to Jerusalem... This was getting to be scary. It was unnerving. They were all afraid. Why, you say? Because they were beginning to understand the danger that Jesus was headed into. They knew that Jerusalem would be filled with people who were coming for the Passover. The Jewish religious leaders who hated Jesus and have already tried to kill him, they would be everywhere. And here is Jesus, not in the crowd, not strolling toward Jerusalem, not hiding in the crowd, not blending in with the crowd. Here is Jesus leading the crowd. He's out in front of the crowd, walking briskly out ahead of the crowd. In, in, in a sense, he is marching toward Jerusalem. Luke chapter 9 says that Jesus set his face steadfastly, that is, with resolve to go to Jerusalem. There's a prophecy in the Old Testament talking about the Messiah, that he would set his face like a flint toward his death. That is, Jesus 
with a strong, determined stride, marches toward his death. And don't forget, he was doing this for us. He was fulfilling the plan of God. He knew exactly what was going to happen to him in a couple of weeks. He knew exactly all the horrifying things he was going to be enduring in a couple of weeks. And he is marching toward that with determination and with resolve. Because Jesus was willingly laying down his life. So then we come to our first question I asked you a while ago. Why did Jesus predict his suffering? Let me share with you several reasons. First of all, he was proving his position as a prophet. In the book of Deuteronomy, Moses had prophesied that the Messiah would be, a, would be a prophet like him. In Deuteronomy 18, you know, that scripture that people say, or that the people were saying to Moses, how can we know whether the message has been spoken by the Lord or not? And Moses basically said, if what a prophet claims in the name of the Lord does not come true, then it's a message that the Lord has not spoken. You see, the ability to predict the future and to have it come true validates whether a person was a real prophet or not. Only a true prophet of the Lord could know the future. And so Jesus was establishing again that he was fulfilling that Old Testament prophecy, that he would be a prophet like Moses, and he was a prophet from God. And in the eyes of the people, he was saying, I can tell you what is going to happen in the future because I am a prophet from God. Secondly, Jesus predicted his sufferings to prove his power over death. As we quoted to you a moment ago, Jesus said, John 10, 18, No one takes my life from me. I lay it down by myself. I have the power to lay it down. I have the power to take it back again. After his resurrection from the dead, he appeared in glory to the apostle John on the Isle of Patmos. In Revelation 1, 18, he says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and of death. Now, what's that mean? I have the keys. He said, he's saying, I am in charge. I am in charge of death. I am in charge of the grave. I triumphed over them. I have the keys. And so Jesus is predicting his sufferings to prove his power over death. You say, why has he got to prove his power over death? Because death is the result of our sin. And Jesus can say, I forgive your sin. But if he can't defeat death, then, then it's just empty words. I mean, I could say, uh, you know, I could say, I forgive you for this crime that you're about to commit, but you're still going to go to jail for 20 years. You say, yeah, well, big deal. But suppose I say, I forgive you of the crime that you commit, and nothing is going to happen to you. Wow, now I did something. So Jesus doesn't just say, I can forgive your sin. He says, I can fix the problem that that's going to bring you. I can fix death. He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about eternal death, separation from God. So Jesus is proving his position as a prophet. He is proving his power over death. The third thing he's doing, he's protecting the faith of his disciples. This was going to be a vicious horrifying trial and death for their beloved master. Jesus is warning them ahead of time that this must happen. He's, he is trying to protect their faith. And then fourth, you know who else's faith? He's, he's protecting ours. He's protecting the faith of coming generations. That's where we come in. All this was written down for us 
who would come along later and we would read these things and we would have our own faith strengthened. Jesus always had in mind the coming generations of his followers. You remember the great, what we call the high priestly prayer of Christ in John 17? Jesus says, my prayer is not for them alone. He's referring to his disciples. But I also pray for those who will believe in me through their word. See, Jesus wanted to protect our faith as well and give us the evidence to believe. The foundation of our salvation is trusting in what Jesus did on the cross. That is how our sins are forgiven. Everyone who comes to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness needs to see Jesus Christ as the willing substitute for us. He took our place. So Jesus' death on the cross was God's plan for our individual salvation. Therefore, you cannot believe that Jesus was just naively trapped into death. You cannot think that he just got in over his head and was overpowered against his will and killed. You have to believe that Jesus purposely, intentionally died in our place for our sin. And this passage helps us to see that. Because we have to see Jesus knowingly, intentionally, willingly, courageously walking up to Jerusalem to die as the fulfillment of the plan that God had made for our salvation. So for our second question, how did he know what would happen to him? Well, there's two answers to that. First of all, in his humanity, he knew it by prophetic scripture. And then secondly, in his deity, he knew it because of his divine foreknowledge. You see, long before Jesus was born, God progressively revealed his plan through the prophets. The Bible revealed very plainly, reveals very plainly that God knows the future. He decrees the future. He predicts the future. And then he makes his predictions come true. That's what we know about God. Before Jesus was ever born, God laid out the whole plan for his life and death on the cross in the 39 books of the Old Testament. I've been quoting scripture to you, a whole bunch of them. I want you to turn to a couple of them with me now. Romans chapter 16. Look at Romans chapter 16, if you would. It's right at the end of Romans. There are a couple of verses here. We don't read these verses a lot in Romans. There are a lot of fantastic passages of Scripture in the book of Romans. But we don't look at these at the, at the very end quite so often. Just the last, the last three verses of Romans 16. Last three verses of the book. Romans 16, verses 25, 26, 27. This is kind of the Apostle Paul's benediction. He's kind of pronouncing this blessing, this benediction on, on the, uh, the people there in Rome, in, in the church there. Romans 16.25, he says, Now to him, of course, God, who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all the nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. To God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Look at verse 26. He says, Now made manifest, that is the the, the plan of God made manifest or revealed by the prophetic scriptures now made known to all nations according to God's commandment for obedience to the faith. In other words, he says, this is why 
All this is being laid out for us. God had a plan, and he laid it out progressively in the, in the prophetic writings, little by little, now all fulfilled in Jesus, Paul says, for the purpose of all nations knowing the truth and obeying it. Look at Luke chapter 24. Again, the very last chapter in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 24. Down near the end of the chapter. Again, we're right at the end of the Gospel of Luke. Luke 24, verse 44. We'll begin to read there. Luke 24, 44. Then he he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Don't miss that. All things have to be fulfilled that were written in Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. So Jesus says specifically to his disciples after his crucifixion, after his three days in the grave, after his resurrection, he says, don't forget, gentlemen, he says, this was the whole plan of God from the very beginning. He says, all those things in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, all those things were, 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 were pointing to me. Now you might say, well, what scriptures prophesy all of this? Well, we have the shedding of blood by God himself way back in Genesis 3 to cover the sin of Adam and Eve. We have the incredible picture of substitutionary atonement in the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. And if you wonder, we'll use that phrase many times, substitutionary atonement, meaning meaning that our sin is covered because someone substitutes for us, someone takes our place. We have the entire sacrificial system laid out in the book of Leviticus. Carol and I have been reading this year through, we are in the process of reading through the entire Bible this year out loud to each other on a chronological reading plan. That is, we're taking it in the order in which it occurred, not in the, not in the groupings of history and prophets and so forth. We're on this chronological Bible reading plan going all the way through the year. Uh, we'd be happy to tell you about it's a great program, averages about three chapters a day. But right now we are in the middle of Leviticus. We've done Genesis, Job, and Exodus, and now we're in the middle of Leviticus. Kind of heavy-duty stuff. But you know what? The shedding of blood of an animal sacrifice is all over the place. Laying your hands on the head of an animal as a symbol of laying your guilt on that animal before it is sacrificed, it is substitutionary atonement. It is all over everywhere, virtually every single chapter in the book of Leviticus. You have the Old Testament situation that Jesus referred to in that most famous passage in the Bible. All of you can probably quote John 3.16. But if you look at that whole context, 14, 15, 16, 17, Jesus is referring to an event that occurred back in Numbers 21. You have the pivotal passages that I already mentioned to you, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. And I would like to look at those briefly, if you would. Look at Psalm 22. 
Psalm 22. It's actually quite astounding when you read Psalm 22. And what makes it astounding, I think there'll be some things that may jump out at you as we read Psalm 22. Psalm 22 was written by King David. You know when King David lived? 1000 B.C. King David lived a thousand years, literally a thousand years before the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Oh, how about that? That's what Jesus said on the cross. Verse 6, I am a worm and no man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lips saying, and they shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. That is exactly what the crowd shouted at Jesus while he was hanging on the cross. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Wow. Verse 12, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, like a piece of pottery. My tongue clings to my jaws. You have brought me to the dust of death. That is exactly the physical experience of a person hanging on the cross, bleeding to death and totally dehydrated. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Nobody was crucified for another 400 years after David wrote these words. They pierced my hands and my feet. I count, I can count all my bones. The flesh was literally ripped off of him with a scourging. They look and stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Exactly what the soldiers did to the Lord Jesus Christ with his clothing. They gambled for his clothing while he was hanging on the cross. You say, how did David know this? Well, God told him what to write. A thousand years before it happened. So the Lord Jesus Christ says in the book of Luke, all the things written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, they all spoke about me. Look at Isaiah 53. There's more we could look, but for the sake of time, I'll leave it to you. You can read Psalm 22 sometime. I know you're great Bible students. You can, you can, you can read that and, and, and look at that. Isaiah 53, you've read it. We've read it. I've preached on it to you. Isaiah 53, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And if you look at the greater context, he's talking about the sin-bearing servant, the suffering servant of God, the Messiah. He'll grow up before God like a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. And look what he says about him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. 
He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Speaking specifically of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Isaiah wrote those words 700 years before Jesus was born. Wow. So how did Jesus know what what would happen to him? In, In his humanity, he knew all about it from prophetic scripture. We just looked at a couple of things here. Secondly, Jesus knew what would happen to him because in his deity, he was the omniscient, all-knowing God. He had supernatural insight into everything. We've already seen that in our study of Mark. We already saw in the early chapters of Mark, Jesus could read your mind. He knew what you were thinking. He knew events that were happening somewhere else. He healed people without even being where they were. We've seen that in the Gospel of Mark. He predicted the total destruction of the temple in Jerusalem 40 years before it happened. And as Jesus, in fact, you can your, wrap your mind around this. Jesus and his disciples are coming into Jerusalem here in just these next verses. And he tells them, it's in chapter 11 here in Mark. He, he tells them to go into Bethany, this little town on the edge of Jerusalem, and you will see a colt tied up there. He says, untie him and bring him to me. And when the owners come out of the house and ask you what you're doing, tell them that I need the colt and they will let you have it. How does Jesus know that? Well, because he knows everything. So the disciples go in. Oh, here's a colt here. So they start untying. But the guy, obviously, the guy comes, hey, what are you guys doing? You know, he's untying my colt. Well, my master needs him. Oh, okay. Well, you, you can have him. And you're like, really? Yeah. And it happened exactly like Jesus said it would happen. Chapter 14, this will really blow your mind. We'll come to it here in a few more weeks. In in chapter 14, Jesus' disciples ask him, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? That's what we call the Last Supper. He ate the Passover the night before he was arrested and crucified. Where do you want us to go to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So Jesus takes two of his disciples and he, he tells them this. He says, go into the city. You will run into a man carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him, and when he enters a house, ask the owner of the house, where is the room uh, where my master can eat the Passover with us? And that man will take you upstairs, and there'll be a room all furnished and prepared for us. There you can get things all ready for us. And I'm thinking, what? There's got to be 100,000 people in Jerusalem for the Passover. At least. The city is packed out for the Passover. And men did not carry water, water jugs. Sorry, ladies, that was a lady's job. Every morning and evening, women would go out, they'd take a picture, they'd go out to a well or a spring or someplace, and they would, they would get water and they would bring it home. That was one pitcher of water in the morning, one pitcher of water in the, in the evening. That was what women always did. So how did Jesus know which gate his disciples would enter, and how did he know that they would see a man carrying a, a, man carrying a pitcher of water, and how did Jesus know what house he was going to go to, and how did Jesus know that the owner of the house had an upstairs room that was all set up for a group of 13 people to observe the Passover and that he would offer it to them. That's like, that's like me saying, hey guys, go to Great Falls, get off the 10th Avenue exit, 
And as you're getting off the 10th Avenue exit, you will see a lime green 1974 Ford pickup turning down exit zero. Follow him. He will turn into the McDonald's parking lot and park. Pull up next to him and ask him to get out and ask him to buy your lunch, and he will. You would say, what? I mean, that, that, that's basically what Jesus is telling his disciples. You're going to walk into the city, you see this guy carrying a pitcher of water, follow him to his house, go in and ask the guy, where's the room where my master can eat? Oh, I got one ready for you. It's right upstairs. It'll be all set, all furnished, all ready to go. How did Jesus know that? Because he knows everything. He has got detailed, meticulous foreknowledge of everything that was going to happen to him because he is proving who he is. So what are the applications for us? And I'll wind up. i got five applications for you. We'll wind this up. Number one, Jesus knew the exact circumstances of his death. He knew exactly what they were going to do to him, and that's what makes his determined, courageous march up to Jerusalem even more amazing. He was doing all of that for us. Number two, Jesus was not an unwilling victim. He willingly laid down his life for sinners like you and me. No one takes my life from me, he says, I lay it down freely. There is no greater expression of the love of God than what Jesus Christ did for us. Number three, we have seen a river of evidence today and we really cut it short. I could ramble on for another hour on some of these passages. But we have seen a river of evidence today of the truth about Jesus' death. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have never come to Him for forgiveness, and if you've never really been quite sure about all of that, you have heard everything this morning that you really need to hear to bow before the Savior and admit your sin and ask Him for forgiveness. Why in the world would you leave here still carrying your guilt when you can come to Christ right now? Number four, for you who know the Lord, remember the power of prophecy. God is determined to fulfill His Word. Fulfilled prophecy is one of the greatest evidences of the truth. The Bible is not just any book. This book is alive. It is powerful because of its predictive prophecies. There is no other book like it on the planet. Never has been, never will be. So when people ask you, why do you believe the Bible? You say fulfilled prophecy. And then you can go to Psalm 22, you can go to Isaiah 53, and there are hundreds of others, but those are some key passages. Remember the power of fulfilled prophecy. And then number five, for all of we who know the Lord, be willing, like Jesus, to suffer or to, to sacrifice for the salvation of other people. Be willing, like Jesus, to sacrifice for the salvation of other people. Because unless we are courageous and willing to get out of our bubble of security and make sacrifices of time and energy and finances, we may not see God moving in the hearts of our friends and loved ones. Dying to self takes courage and it takes sacrifice but that is the pattern that Jesus set for his followers when he marched to his own death in Jerusalem. Willingly and voluntarily.
So be willing, like Jesus, to sacrifice for the salvation of other people. May God give us the courage to be willing. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that the Spirit of God will take the Word of God and He will apply it to our hearts. Lord, I don't know what is in the heart of each person here today. I don't know, Lord, where they stand with you or where they may be struggling. I don't know what those issues are, but I know, Lord, that you have the answers. You have the power. You are the almighty, omniscient, all-knowing God. You know everything about us. You know what we think. You know what we say. You know what we do. Lord, help us to be willing, we who know you as our Savior, help us to be willing to sacrifice for the salvation of other people. We know, Lord, it's hard to talk, it's hard to witness, it's hard to know what to say. We all struggle with those things. But Lord, help us to be willing. Lord, we pray for our friends and loved ones who so sincerely and deeply need the Lord Jesus. Some of them are quite comfortable in their life, don't think they need the Lord. Others are undergoing trials and troubles and their life is a mess. And they definitely need the Lord. Lord, I just pray that you would would help us as we serve and walk this world, walk this road in this world. Help us to be what you want us to be. Thank you for this tremendous passage of Scripture that just tells us the courage and the willingness and the intentional nature of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross, fulfilling the plan of God for our salvation. May it challenge us to do the same for others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Look at your hymn book at number 239 again, In Christ Alone.